0: Finally, they have my favorite Slayer X hydrate powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at slayerx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayerX products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan-friendly, and the Hydrate Lite is keto-friendly. They've all been well-researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hard-working folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayerX.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT21 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay SlayRx. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a college professor and I'm the father of twin boys.
1: My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a CPA and I am a mom to three girls.
2: And my name is Eric Hall. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina, a father to three teenagers and the husband to a beautiful wife.
0: And Eric Hall is now the finisher of the Black Hills 100.
1: I just want the belt buckle. (laughs)
0: <laughs> eric let's go around the horn but we have to start with you tell us what you've been up to for the last week or so or the last three weeks really since uh, we haven't all gotten together to podcast in the last few weeks because of interviews
2: yeah so um i mean you kind of you kind of ruined it there <laughs> but, so grace and i uh, grace my daughter my 17 year old daughter and i went out and ran the black hills 100 in uh, Sturgis, south dakota and, uh, we had a blast. We abs- absolutely had a blast. It-, it was, it was definitely the toughest thing I've ever done. It's it's, it's a, it's a 100
0: meter to... race. Is that what we're talking about, Eric? Yes,
2: <laughs> it's a 100 mile race. There um, you go. And if all goes well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it more next week on the podcast. i gave give you a little race report, uh, bring, uh, grace on the podcast and yeah, we'll, uh, we'll let her talk about the experience, Um, of running a hundred miles when you're 17 years old. I think we're going to
1: let her further define what you mean when you say we had a blast because I'm pretty sure race amnesia has totally taken over Eric Hall.
0: (laughs) For sure. For sure. It was 34 hours of pure joy. I'm sure
1: it was really tough for us also, by the way.
0: So it was not tough for us. It was not. Michelle is is gnawing away at this bone about how we had it so hard because we weren't able to track you. Um, that is, Michelle is the only person in your universe that feels that, cared. that way, Eric. No. I'm that, the only that,
1: person that cared.
0: You're not the only person who cared. You're just the only person who felt like you were having a more difficult task than Eric was. <laughs> <laughs> having to sit in your house, unable to track. Um, that's right but this is a this is a topic we will revisit next week um yeah i'm i'm super psyched that that uh, you and grace are going to tell us about it in great detail and of course we couldn't let it go by without devoting an entire podcast to it um we are tonight going to talk about bravy talk about the book um as as planned um but uh i'm i'm super psyched to get all the ins and outs all the details the ups and downs because there were lots of ups and downs in that hundred mile race Uh, That's actually the description
2: of the course. You go up, you go down, (laughs) you go up, you go down, you go up, you go down, and then you do it all over again.
0: Perfect. Perfect.
2: You know what though? Saturday, unfortunately, the the only unfortunate thing about Saturday was that I missed the start of the tour. So the other thing I've been doing is catching up with the tour and realizing just how poorly you and the Justins predicted how this race going <laughs> oh, at least through stages
0: <laughs> one through six so we got somebody, some we, somebody we got some said things right some we got some a. things wrong for sure i'm not going to i'm not going to i i thought about okay. it i'm not going to say too much about it i've been watching the tour like literally every pedal stroke it's been great i've been loving it um but uh but but i wasn't going to talk about it too much tonight because i don't want to give, give away anything to folks who like you are trying to cap catch up on missed days and everything but <laughs> but no the uh, the first six stages have been super exciting and and there were some things we expected and a lot of things we didn't expect um and so so yeah we will, will definitely circle around afterwards tour. so we'll not win the tour so <laughs> who, who do we say was not win the tour Froome will not win the tour. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. I, when, when, when Justin Smith suggested to me that that Chris Froome might win the tour like a month before the tour, I laughed at it and said there was absolutely no way. Um, and clearly, there's absolutely no way. Um, so that that's that's made plainly obvious by the first uh, by the first week here. Um, but there's been some 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 a lot of excitement in the tour. Um, I was I was. Uh, uh, writing with, uh, Chrissy Euler, um, on Facebook yesterday. Um, it's been super exciting for both good reasons and bad reasons, um, and compelling for both good reasons and bad reasons. Uh, the last couple of days, fortunately the last three days, it's been more for good reasons than bad reasons. Um, but the first three stages were just so filled with crashes and drama and ugliness. Um, glad to have that behind us, at least for now. So mountain start tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Michelle, what you been up to?
1: Um, thought I would just highlight the amazing races, uh, the U S track and field Olympic trials took place over kind of the last two weeks over a 10 day period.
0: Awesome.
1: Took us some really late nights watching track races, <laughs> 11 midnight, two thirty AM. Um, amazing performances, you know, just like we suspected we would see really, really fast running, I just wanted to highlight uh, I think you know one of our favorite brands or at least one of my favorite brands (laughs) Tracksmith uh, had 30 you know amateur quote-unquote amateur athletes that they you know kitted and everything for the trials and at the end of the day they're sending five uh, unsponsored previously unsponsored let's say um, you know track and field athletes to Tokyo. They had a bunch more come in fourth place and I think there's really something to be said about a company, you know, an apparel brand that just kind of picks up the pieces where the sponsorship, you know, industry for track and field just lacks it. And for instead sure. of all these athletes going in with whatever they wanted to wear and unbranded completely, Tracksmith made them feel a part of something. And they set up, you know, a track house and they uh, hosted a podcast. They sponsored a podcast that every single morning I woke up, there was at least one 40-minute episode. Uh, track trials. And I just, you know, think that the performances and the races are all there. You can find them on YouTube and NBC sports and the Olympic channel, the replays, but just really wanted to give a shout out to them. I thought it was great uh, just to those athletes to feel part of a bigger something on the biggest, you know, what was at the time the biggest race stage of their lives. So, um, but all in all, I think it lived up to the hype and more. And I think we've got some amazing teams I think going to so represent too. the United States and Tokyo. So it'll There's, be interesting. I think we're gonna bring home a shit ton of medals. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a very very specific amount there yes. um, <laughs> um that's so, right <laughs> i i i enjoyed i didn't watch it as as uh, diligently as you did i watched a lot of highlights and, and kind of kept up with the news and all that sort of thing i know but uh but but i was uh busy watching the tour and other things um but but tell me this what was your of all the races um what was your favorite michelle
1: um i think that honestly watching emily sisson yeah You know, I mean, she, this is really the first Olympic team that she's made. We, she's only, you know, I think she's 27. So she just, I don't want to say recently graduated, but so to speak, she, she, quickly went to the marathon when she turned professional, and I think people really associate her with being much older than she actually is, it's just because we typically don't see women turn to the marathon and be as competitive and as fast as she is, maybe until later in their careers or maybe in their early 30s, um, but you know she had an incredibly disappointing race at the marathon trials here in Atlanta after an incredible debut in London, uh, with one of the fastest American debuts in the marathon. And she withdrew from the marathon trials here. So she had a DNF on her name for that. And she really just hunkered down in Phoenix and went through a really rough patch. And she came back in that 10 K and it was supposed to be run in the evening and it was going to be 105 degrees. So, you know, 48 hours before the race, they said, they're going to run on Saturday morning at 10 AM. And man, she just, this is not my term, this is being used everywhere, but she put on a clinic out there. I mean, she mm-hmm. was She's great on pace exactly, you know, what she wanted to run for the first half and she just cranked it down the second 5K. So yeah. I thought it was great to just see her run. She ran a 31.03. I don't want to say she soloed it, but she might as well. She lapped every single runner, but the next six who came in behind her. Right. Um. So I thought that was amazing. And just to see her finally get an Olympic berth was
0: pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I agree. It was a super impressive performance and it was fun to watch. Um, so yeah, fantastic. I did see that one as it took place (laughs) or at least the last mile or so of it, because I had a hard time trying to navigate the, uh, the NBC coverage. Um, um, so I, I, I did see that one. So, and it was fun. I liked the, uh, the men's 1500, I thought it was oh, great. Oh yeah,
1: that was amazing. Um,
0: which was won by Cole Hawker, um, who is just finishing his freshman year at, at, at uh, Oregon um, and, and beat the reigning Olympic champion, Matt Centrowitz, um, in a kick. And Cole Hawker, he has this devastatingly fast kick. He won the NCAA championship with it as well. But he runs almost like a soccer player. The way he looks when he runs is, is at least when he's sprinting towards the finish, is very interesting. Um, and so I think he's actually, given the way that he's able to close so fast and run so fast, I think he's a medal favorite, um, certainly in the Olympic Games. Um, and then my favorite race, though, even though I, I like distance running, of course, when we talk about endurance events on here, my favorite race of the entire trials was the women's 400-meter hurdles. Um, Why? there's something about sydney mclaughlin sydney McLaughlin it's just amazing out there, um just... And, and becoming the first woman ever to run under 52 seconds she ran 51.9 um it was just it was an incredible she made it race. Look easy and she yeah i think that's kind of part of it is this just how brilliant she was from the final hurdle to the finish line um it just it was it was poetry in motion i mean it was just a thing of beauty um i mean the track and field is not always the most aesthetically brilliant sport sure. um it's it tends to be kind of raw and, and pretty straightforward um but actually watching that race uh it it, it felt like i was watching a, a work of art um and and i don't say that lightly <laughs> so. she
1: clears the hurdles with so much space
0: mm-hmm.
1: and she runs that i mean like she's running times that 400 without hurdles would be you know, enough to get her to oh, the yeah. finals of the trials. Like it's pretty unbelievable.
0: So. Yeah. I saw, I saw something, uh, that was posted cause she's, she's young as well. She's only 21, 22 years old as well. Right. But I saw, I saw something that's po- that, that I think you might've sent it to me, Michelle, that said, here's Sydney McLaughlin's, uh, uh, progression over the course of the last seven years. And when she was 14 years old, she ran a 53 second, 400, um, what? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she's incredible. Um, She's incredibly gifted. She clearly works very hard. And now she's a world record holder and a gold medal favorite. Um, So yeah,
1: I think it's good that, you know, I, I don't love when people go to college, she went to Kentucky for a year, and then obviously gave up the rest of her NCAA eligibility to turn pro. So I'm always so nervous for these kids, if the rest of their life is literally derailed, because they have one standout year in college, give up the rest of their NCAA eligibility and then running professionally doesn't pan out. But for her, you know, it's good to see it all kind of come together when it's supposed to come together. So
0: for sure. For sure. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I want to mention really quickly before we hop into talking about another Olympian until we talk and uh, jump into talking about Bravey. um, uh, A couple of guests a couple of updates on a couple of guests that have been on the podcast before uh the first one somebody we had very recently Taggart Van Etten um Taggart Van Etten of course when we interviewed him he had just set the treadmill 100 mile record um and he was gearing up for his six days in the dome um his attempt to be the first person to run under 11 hours uh for 100 miles there um in uh that race in Wisconsin um and he did not have a good day um, and we we had discussed a little bit on the podcast, and we had certainly discussed a lot amongst ourselves what was going to happen and, and what his chances were. He was definitely very excited for it. He he had 1059 shaved in the side of his head, and he posted a whole lot on on Instagram leading up to the race and that sort of thing. Um, and he just kind of fell apart right around the 100K mark. Um, seemed like he went a little bit too fast. Um, he started off a little bit slower and kind of sped up to goal pace, and then exceeded goal pace. And Mike not should have done that. Um, but, um, but I am sure that he has spent a lot of time reflecting on it and trying to figure out what he was going to do. Um, he initially had said he had posted on Instagram, um, that after he ran six days in the dome, he was going to train for an Ironman triathlon. Um, and then he was going to refocus on that Olympic trials qualifier marathon, um, that he talked about when he came on the podcast. Um, just in the last couple of days, he's kind of pivoted again. Um, and he has said that his new goal is to try and break the world record for 24 hours. And so he's going to be going out to the desert solstice race in, is that in November? Michelle?
1: I mean, it's definitely late fall. Yeah, it's late exactly. fall,
0: November, December. Um, and his goal is going to be to, to break the long-standing 24-hour record of about 188 miles, um, attempting to run that on a track there um, in Arizona over the course of 24 hours. So he uh, seems pretty excited about that goal. He's, and, and by all means, I, uh, I think it's good to focus on a goal that you're excited about. Whether this is maybe a bit much. Uh, I don't know. We can, we can talk about this some other time. Um, but, uh, it's, I I think suffice to say, um, it's an extremely ambitious goal. Um, and so, so we listen, wish him good luck. Hope he stays healthy and and hope it goes well for him. Um, but, uh, we will definitely kind of keep an eye on that. He, uh, like we said, he's posted a lot on Instagram lately, and he's starting to, to run more on Zwift. He posted in the Zwift Runners uh, forum that I'm in on Facebook uh, that he's going to be running a couple of times a week on Zwift and encouraging people to join him for, for runs and that sort of thing. So um, I'll let y'all know if I do that. Um, the other person I wanted to talk about uh, was one of the very first guests that we had on this podcast. Um, and I shared an announcement on the Facebook page for the podcast about Paul Link. Uh, earlier this week. Uh, Paul Link was an outstanding marathoner an outstanding triathlete, uh, and an outstanding person. Um, he got into triathlon. I only learned this in the last few days. He got into triathlon in about 2009, 2010, immediately threw himself into long course stuff, um, and qualified to compete in Kona in 2012, which happens to be the, the, the same year that I did it the first time. Um, by the time he and I met in 2013, he felt like this experienced triathlete, um, and uh, I felt like this newbie who was looking up to him, but it turned out that he only had a couple more years in the sport than I did. Um, but the reason why is because he had such enthusiasm for it, and he always threw himself so deeply into all the different aspects of, of, um, of triathlon um he loved technology he was always an early adopter of all the technology and then he would write these detailed reviews of all the technology that he used such that if anybody would go on the atlanta triathlon club forum and say hey i'm trying to decide between this garmin and this garmin he would say well these are the literally these are the 12 garments that i've tried and here are their relative strengths to one another i like um, this guy oh yeah he was great Sorry, no
1: no <laughs> um
0: and and um the uh another time somebody was uh, so, said yeah i'm thinking about doing a, a keto diet anybody have any thoughts on this and you had you know a few people on the forum would say stuff like i think keto is great i think it's a terrible idea i lost 20 pounds doing it i gained 50 pounds doing it whatever he comes in with this long analysis of this in-depth study that he did with keto and he used the he had graphs and all these different sorts of things and he just like ends the conversation because <laughs> it's like this is this is by far the most well informed person on on this particular diet and he was that way about everything um, it was that way on bike choice and on tires and like all of these different aspects of triathlon that that um that, that we all just love but um he got into in about 2014 um he got into um uh, he got involved with the 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 Kyle Pease Um, And he and John Rutledge and Tim Myers um, worked together with Justin Knight to get Justin Knight to the finish line of Ironman Florida in 2015 or 2016, 2015. Um, And with that in mind, um, I had him, Paul and Brent Pease on the podcast for, I think, episode like five super early in the podcast um and they talked about uh inclusion and they talked about the challenges that are faced by athletes with disabilities um and about the work that they were doing to try and ensure that the benefits of endurance racing could be extended to as many people as possible regardless of whether they had disabilities Um, he was a a, an admirable person all the way around he was a good friend of mine Um, As you can guess, by the way, we're talking about it, um, he died this past week. Um, He was only 55 years old, um, but he had about a five-year battle with cancer um, that ultimately he lost. Um, Paul will be greatly missed, um, and uh, I know that I'm not the only person who feels that way. So, um, All right, it feels crass, or it feels uh, untoward to just move on from that, but We're going to move on from that um, uh, to talk about Alexi Pappas's book. (laughs) Um, So this is the week, of course, um, the week of July 4th that we said we were going to talk about our book of the quarter. Our book of the quarter was Bravey by Alexi Pappas. Um, Let's kind of reintroduce it, even though we've talked about it several times already. Michelle, can you tell us Alexi Pappas, who she is, why she wrote this book, all that stuff?
1: I guess I can. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so (laughs) Alexi Pappas, um, she is an Olympian. She ran for Greece and Rio. She ran the 10,000 meters. Um, she comes from California, you know, played a variety of sports growing up, did four years at Dartmouth and, uh, really kind of became a standout runner there. Um, notably under actually, uh, coach Mark Coogan, who's got a bunch of athletes that qualified for, uh, Tokyo at the trials. So, Um, anyway, after she did four years at Dartmouth, she had a fifth year, a little bit of remaining eligibility. She went out to university of Oregon, uh, used up her eligibility there. And then she stayed on and she began a professional running career there. Um, she was with Nike, like many, uh, female athletes that we've spoken about on the podcast. She left Nike, um, kind of went to train with Dina Castor's group up in Mammoth Lakes, um, has had a few sponsor changes uh, ended up running for, uh, she has citizenship in Greece. So she ended up running for them for the Olympics and basically just kind of came out with a book and really in the space, I would say, if we can just use a big umbrella term of just normalizing mental health struggles. And I think, you know, after a year of, um, the me too movement and all these unveilings from the Oregon project and, you know, just, a lot of different stuff that we've seen a female athletes coming out about their struggles, whether it's with eating disorders or being assaulted or some type of abuse. Um, she came out and basically spoke about depression and uh, post, I would say a post Olympic depression, which I guess Michael Phelps kind of maybe is the bigger uh, athlete who introduced this in the last few years and talked about her bout with uh, being suicidal and the book kind of details her recovery through that and draws the parallels to in a way uh, being physically injured um, the way that her brain was quote unquote mentally injured. So it was a heavy book. (laughs) I knew that going in. I don't think you guys believed me as much as maybe you should (laughs) have,
0: but I I think now, I I think
1: now, you know, (laughs) so um, sorry. That was kind of a long winded intro. It's hard. She's so complex and she's so creative and for every, detail about her it feels like she just lives so much in the abstract that there's you know 10 other details so um yeah we read Bravey by Alexi Pappas and mm-hmm. we all had very different reactions to it I think so
0: yeah yeah well let's let's I guess let's talk about those reactions Eric I'm going to put you on the spot since I have talked a lot and uh, Michelle's talked a lot um we're not going to say our overall takeaways necessarily but let's let's I guess let's start off by talking about the things that we liked about it um so Eric something you liked about it
2: I like that it was real she didn't try to really she didn't try to hide anything she just and you may not have appreciated her voice as she's talking about it you may not have you know appreciated some of those long uh periods in the book where you're trying to figure out you know maybe what you can get out of it or what um sometimes trying to figure out what she's trying to present I think sometimes I got I got lost in what she was trying to present but I think it's a, it's a real book and, and it's, it's the way you would almost have a conversation with somebody at times. Cause I would say at times it's almost like stream of consciousness because you're having, it's like, she's talking about one thing. And then all of a sudden, I think you're 10 years before, (laughs) and then you're five years after that point and in a span of maybe five pages, 10 pages. So, but I think it's real. I think it's, it's, I didn't doubt anything I read, there was no reason to, I'm I'm reflecting back to the previous book we read where we're like, well, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of, you know, editorial rights thrown into that. There was a little extra Mm -hmm. um, added to that. This seems to be a very real book, a real account of her life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she, she tells it through the eyes of, you know, young, young, young Alexi. And she tells it through the eyes of, you know, coming of age, Alexi. And then she tells it through the eyes of post Olympian Alexi, who's gone through these issues. And I don't think she uh, changes her voice through the whole thing. I think it's very true to who she is and what she experienced. So I think for that, I really liked it. Yeah. You know Yeah.
0: I, mean? I, I think you're right about that. I think that there were there were definitely times when she like shared some details and this was not so much about the mental health stuff, but like when she talks about the first time she had sex, I was like, Hello, if I wrote a memoir, I don't know if I'd write about that um and right. so the, the, there's there's definitely times where she when, when when she talked about things that um yeah are very real um and what's more, I think that that she also she talked about things sometimes that were that were influential in her life that are influential in all of our lives that we wouldn't necessarily want to say are influential so okay, she went to the Olympics, yes, influential of course, and she talks about that. Her mother committed suicide when she was a young girl. Yes, obviously influential, and she talked about that, right? But then she also talks about like her high school boyfriend, um, and the relationship she had with her high school boyfriend, and how they broke up. That very much influenced her future romantic relationships and the way that she saw um, saw men. And so, so like, I think sometimes we want these sort of marquee events to be the the key events in our lives, and and we don't want like our high school relationships to be the things that shape us. Um, but I thought that she, it was cool that she talked about that on in in a way that that owned up to the influence those things have on us so yeah i agree with you that it's very real go ahead Mm -hmm.
1: she did that because those are all of those pieces are what defines who she is in the same way that like we might not go to the olympics and we might not be elite athletes but we all have some story to write from some part of our life whether it's a high school boyfriend or the first time we had sex or whatever it is her mom committing suicide i mean it's a known fact for her but she's using all of those and comparing them and contrasting them and literally laying them side by side in almost a way to say one is not necessarily more important than the other mm-hmm. like every single yeah that's what i'm saying I'm yeah. Yeah. i am agreeing with yeah. you the person that i no, am i
0: think that, yeah that's what, I, that's what I was that's what i was saying and, then, and i thought them. that was interesting um yeah and and, and that that's exactly what i'm saying. I do think that there there are a few of those things such as her mother's suicide that she goes back to over and over and over again because that did have an outsized impact on her life. Of course.
1: Yeah, she said as you would
0: expect. But but, but no i'm experience. i'm totally agreeing with you that that w- what we want would want to do. Like if you asked George to write the story of his life, i would be loath to say yes, i was really heavily shaped by some really minor thing in my life or some really trite thing in my life and she doesn't She's not ashamed of that. And, and I think that's good. Um, and to Eric's point, I think that's real um, and, and, and relatable. Yeah. Um, I mean, think that's, that's positive. What would what, you like about really, it? Oh, Go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Well, I think the way she tells the story and the fact that those things are in there is a, she has a very high self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a willingness to express that. And I, mm-hmm. that, so that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I, I don't read books like this all the time. And I I think that's what got me back into the book when say the heaviness maybe pushed me away from the book. Sometimes what got me back in was, well, yeah, I mean,
1: I know it was heavy,
2: but, but it was a book that even though it was heavy, I kept coming back to it and I wanted to finish it. And, and I think what draw what was drawing me back to the book was it's, it's going to be a real conversation about her life. Mm -hmm. And she's going to be very clear about how those like, George said those small things shaped her so
0: I, I think I think she's very reflective I think she's very thoughtful I think she was missing one key piece of self-awareness that we'll talk about later <laughs> um, because we're talking about the things we liked right now um, right. so Michelle what do you think what, what stood out as a positive for you
1: yeah I mean I Well, I want to say what I liked about, but I also want to talk about the title. But first, I think what I really loved was just there was this overarching theme of just not waiting for your defining moment. Like we're all just going through life thinking it might be this moment or it might be that moment. You know, it's this moment that's going to define who we are and how we live our life. And her whole point is just like there is no one moment that's really going to transform you into who you're meant to be it's, you're already that person, like every step that you've already taken and every step that you're gonna take is and should be, you know, can be considered a defining moment. So I just think, you know, everybody goes through whatever they're gonna go through and whether it's like a high or a low. And I think she does a great job of just making it all matter. Um, And Mm -hmm. I really, I felt like that was a theme Um, only once you get into the book, you know, do you see that she really inserts a poem, um, like in between every single chapter, so to speak, that
0: was was my favorite part.
1: Yeah. So she says what, so on this point, she says, you know, and one of the poems say, I admire pickles because there is no one moment that makes a pickle, a pickle. It is a thing that happens over time. Pickles are patient. Like there is no one moment. Like it's just constantly happening. So, um, I'm not. Like a creative abstract person, I don't really understand poetry or go really? seek it out, but I did like. <laughs> but I did like that. I just thought that was a good. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I found yeah, that that's good.
2: my favorite poem in the whole book, and I actually took a picture of that and I kept it on my phone. Why? What for, does that
1: poem say to you?
2: Well, I kept it for a very specific reason. Um, Grace absolutely loves pickles, and when we were <laughs> flying out to South Dakota. I flashed that over to her as we were on the airplane. Cause I wanted her to think about that. I knew it would kind of have like a, you know, a, a chuckle and she would think, Oh yeah. I like, I like pickles, but I wanted her to think about that because we were about to marinate together for a really long time.
0: This <laughs> <laughs> and- is there some serious grinding like- <laughs> that was about to happen. Yeah. And,
2: and, and, and I, 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 I will admit, I have thought about that many, many times, you know, as a, as a distance runner, as someone who's, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an ultra marathoner yet. I don't consider that, but I am doing ultra marathons and it is a process. And she's in that same process with me. And it, it's, you gotta be patient. You gotta be very patient. Like I just, so I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that is my favorite poem in the whole book.
1: Um, I just want to say another thing I really liked was there was a lot of talk about the title. Like, what is bravery? Like, what is this word and where did it come from? And, um, you know, she basically she talks about a really hard workout in middle school and she was doing something for for a poetry class and the word just came to her Um, and she used it as the title of the book because, you know, she basically said it celebrates the choice to pursue a goal and even relishes the pain that comes with effort. There is nobility to it. It's something to be celebrated. And she went on to say that it's not an outward facing label, like you're strong or you're an Olympian, um, but more a choice that you make about your relationship with yourself. So I love the title. I think um, it was kind of perfectly crafted for, for this. Yeah.
0: Book. In the introduction, she, she says one night before a particularly daunting workout, I typed out this poem, run like a bravey, sleep like a baby, dream like a crazy, replace can't with maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot about that. That's great.
0: Yeah, I, I thought that the poetry was my favorite part of the book. It really was. Um, I mean, if 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 it was a book of poems um, and that was it, like you had taken out all the rest of the text, I would have I I would have nothing bad to say about it. You know, um, there's still I mean, there there are things I liked about it. and There are things I just liked about it, but but I would have nothing bad to say about it as a book of poetry um, because I I actually really looked forward to those at the ends of the chapters or the beginnings of the chapters. Um, um, because I thought they were fun, um, and I thought that they were they were interesting, and they I, I thought that the best thing about her writing was her metaphors, um, and and I think that that's what so much of poetry is is metaphor, like the pickle metaphor, um, and uh, and and so yeah, I, I very much liked all the poetry as well. Yeah. yeah, very good. Just out of curiosity, have
2: either of you seen
0: Track Town? I, I, so it dawned on me literally this afternoon, I was like, I should have made time to watch track town, which is by the way, we should say she, she's a filmmaker. So she's an Olympic athlete. Obviously she's a professional runner, but she's also a filmmaker. She and her husband make movies together. Um, and, and so, um, the first movie that they released together was called Track Town, and it was a, a fictionalized account of uh, of an elite runner. And she acted in it; she she portrayed the the lead. And then Rachel Dratch played her mom, Rachel Dratch from Debbie Downer from from SNL um, played her mom. Um, but no, I hadn't seen it.
1: I, I've seen it. I'll say if you you know want insight into Alexi Pappas and who she is and what she's been through and how she lives her life, this book is by far and away better than Tracktown, so to speak. Okay. And Tracktown is fictional, right? But mm-hmm. but there was a lot of that that was crafted around, you know, who she is and her experience. Right. I don't know, I didn't, I mean, I didn't love the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it's worth watching, I think. I think I think now that you've read the book, it would be interesting for me actually to go back and watch it now that yeah. I've read the book. Yeah. Um, but it was prior to reading this book, it was, you know, easy pass if you just but
0: mm-hmm. yeah i i uh i one of the one of the parts i thought was really interesting in the book is when she talked about when the movie came out um and it was at the i want to say los angeles international film festival or something like that but but it was it was released it was an indie film and it was released in this film festival um and a critic from variety magazine watched it um and wrote a review and it was a critical <laughs> review um <laughs> and and her recounting how the review felt um i thought was a really interesting passage in the book um and in particular the reviewer um and a few of the commenters on the review were fixated on the shape of her body um in a sex scene in the movie um and and she was like this is exactly the the issue like um, and, and, and she kind of takes that and segues into talking about her own discomfort and around her body and and a lot of the ways that she felt she never fit in entirely um, because of the unique shape of her body that was both skinny and strong. Um, that was a very interesting part. Um, I felt like there were several times throughout it where she talked about her experience as a female athlete and just what that was like. Um, she talks about when she was in high school that – um, uh, like the the male athletic director and the male cross-country coach basically told her that she could only do one sport um, and they didn't have that for all the guys at the school the guys at the school were celebrated for playing basketball and football and baseball um, but at her private Catholic high school the cross-country coach said you either need to quit all other sports and solely do this or or I'm not going to run you at the meets in the cross-country team um, and and like just that sort of level institutionalized sexism was, was, was striking. And then of course she talks about how it carried over into uh, when she was in college in the athletic department at Dartmouth, where she worked um, or where she, where she went, um, where she ran um, about the issues she ran into specifically as a female athlete, which is something I never had to worry about as a male athlete um, in high school and in college. I, I thought those were, those were very striking, very gripping passages of the book.
2: I think you you missed one there and it's a positive one. I think it's in the in the it's hard to tell where it is in the book sometimes when you think about <laughs> but it's in the area about her talking about that review at Tracktown and I think they're called the Judies, the Jane's. The Jane's. Okay, it was the Jane's, the running group she found and I thought what a what a really cool, you know, it, it's a it, I don't want to call it a sorority because it, that has such a bad connotation, but mm-hmm. it's this, he, she talked about this strong uh, group of female runners that apparently accepted her in with them mm-hmm. and, you know, pushed her and probably really, she didn't talk about it, but I bet they probably really appreciated her. And then her, her, she always talks about latching on to mentors and mm-hmm. I, I feel like that group got her through that time or helped her with those perceptions about herself. And I thought that was pretty cool. I just,
0: yeah, Yeah. no, I thought that was cool too. And I I wish you would have talked more about it. Um, I um, yeah, she, she did. And, and you just mentioned this a minute ago, Eric and and just reiterate now. So, so we'll kind of mention this too. Um, And this was, this is a semi complaint of me for the book, even though I appreciate where she was coming from with it is that she didn't write the book in a linear fashion. She didn't say, okay, 1995, this happened. And then 96 happened, then 97 happened. And she didn't kind of go through and do that. Um, and she, she hopped around. She, she wrote it sort of in this postmodern, very thematic fashion. And sometimes it made it hard to track her development as a person. Um, and it made it hard to track her psychology sometimes because she didn't follow a really straight path. Um, so it's sometimes hard to follow that story. And I think that's, um, I think that's kind of related to something you said a a second ago, Eric, I I think I'm picking up on what you said. Um, well, I think she does.
1: I mean, the James on a grand
0: scale,
2: on a grand scale, it's a chronological book, but she, she backtracks. It's almost like she does these one eighties or, or leaps in time backwards. And then, so I agree with you. That's what made it a little difficult to read uh, at times. But I also, like I said, it feels like a conversation. Mm-hmm. Your conversations aren't always chronological. Yeah, yeah. And, uh,
0: and and you definitely, you definitely, by the time you got to the end of the book, and I think this is very much what you had in mind. By the time you got to the end of the book, you got it, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. It's just that when you're a third of the way through the book, you're like, wait, where are we now? You're talking about the Olympics <laughs> and you're, but I thought you were 12, you know? And and, and so it's kind of, by, by the time you get to the end, you have a pretty clear sense of the whole picture. Yeah. Um, but But when you're in the midst of it, and it's kind of circling around and swirling and everything. Um, it sometimes can be hard to tell exactly where you are in the timeline of her life. Um, Michelle, I did love what, were you what about she said
1: about mentors um, and how she is always looking for, you know, the next or another female mentor. And a lot of her conversations about what her relationship was like when she was at Mammoth Lakes with Dina Castor, To me, it's almost parallel what Dina Castor talks about and wanting to be, you know, an example for the next generation. It felt like everything that Dina said in her book, which I think is an amazing book, kind of came to life in in Alexi's experience, having trained Hmm. with her and trained under her. Hmm. Um, I loved what she said about the fact that some of her female mentors are people who she's really formed relationships with and never even met. And like these people will never even know that she, you know, considers them a mentor, so to speak. So I feel like, and I don't know if it's like this for men because, hey, I'm not a guy, but I feel like I do the same thing. I mean, I definitely have, you know, a few people that are just steadfast from the time that I could ever, you know, even remember what is a mentor, like who, what does it mean? But then there's also people out there that I think about that maybe I've met once or twice, but I really, like, I look up to them and I hang on to stuff that they say and things that they write and people that they coach um, and i liked that even though she was confined well, i don't want to say confined but even though she was you know a member of certain training groups i mean these are small niche training groups she had mentors everywhere um, and i think that's just like an important lesson for girls all the way you know through womanhood basically mm-hmm. um, So I I like that she touched on that. And it seemed like that was a big point of continuity for her. Like she's just going to keep finding mentors. And with this book, obviously she's probably turning herself. And she even acknowledged the fact that even before the book, you know, she has tons of girls um, and female athletes that look up to her. So she's also in a mentor role. Um, And I really liked, she had a whole chapter on that. So I enjoyed reading that. I felt like I could relate to a lot of that.
0: I wish that she would have talked about, okay, so we just talked about how she talked about a lot of her experiences all on the same level, even the ones that are marquee experiences, the ones you would maybe not consider to be so-called marquee experiences. Um, I wish she would have talked about all of her mentors on the same level. Um, and, and what I mean by that is is so- The name so, dropping? So, yeah, exactly. I wasn't going to use that term, but since you did, um, is that I felt like she was name dropping a lot in this book. Um, and I felt like, like the Janes, for example, who, who Eric mentioned a second ago, she, she's, um, in this just so we're really, clear, the
1: Janes are a
0: yeah, female
1: you. group of competitive female runners, amateur athletes, let's say. And she hooked up with them during a period in her life when she was in between training groups after college, um, out in California. And they were literally just a group of women who meet at 6am and go run and have easy days and hard days. And they just, mm-hmm kind of welcomed her in even though they were decades older than her. So Right
0: right. And and they they help see her through a pretty critical time in her development as an athlete. Yeah. Really. Um and she doesn't name a single one of them by name. And then she writes a whole chapter about Maya Rudolph. And it's like did you really need to write this whole chapter about Maya Rudolph and what a great mom you think she is and about how, you know, she lives around the corner from you and she made a list of restaurants that you put on your refrigerator and you're trying to go to all those restaurants now.
1: I mean, that felt a little,
0: that felt a little name droppy, you know, um, when she didn't say, when she didn't name a single member of the James, like she didn't name a single one of them. And it might be because she was trying to protect their anonymity. It might be for some, some reason that I don't totally understand, but it seems like whenever there was a mentor in her life who was a famous person like Dina Castor or whenever she had a good conversation with someone like Bill Heater, she would actually name them. And it felt like she was almost bragging about that. And then when it was somebody who was less important, like a coach, for example, she talks about the coach that she had when she was first running pro, she never even names him. Um, She talks about the experience she had with him, but she never even gives him a name. I I, I don't, I don't totally understand that. Um, I didn't get that. So, um let's let's talk more though about because i still have good things to say about the book um and so so tell me uh eric or michelle another thing you liked about it eric i know you liked the part where she talked about um weighing physical benefits versus mental costs right
2: oh definitely and and i, I think it it i think in preparation for the blue ridge relay one year i think you said it george um you said, all right, we're all <laughs> it was like three years ago. Um,
0: yes, by said, all means, Eric, tell me what wisdom I shared with you before the Blue Ridge we're were all like three tapering. years ago.
2: <laughs> we were all tapering to go to, to get into Blue Ridge, and you put out a message and you said, Hey, this just because you have all this time on your hands doesn't mean you need to go out and start doing, you know, yard work because your body can't differentiate the stress. Mm-hmm. Stress is, is stress. This is
1: like George's favorite thing to say. No, it's
2: well, that's true the, though. And, it, and it's, it's mm-hmm. true. And it's a mistake that many idiotic males will make. Um, we will fill time with the tasks that we haven't been getting done because we've been out running miles. And some of those tasks will put a lot of strain on our bodies. But the, the difference here is the strain on your mind and just how taxing that can be. Mm-hmm. And That really hit me and I've really carried it forward. And I, you know, you know, I I don't want to keep referencing back to this, but, you know, over the 33 hours and 36 minutes Hmm. that Grace and I were running that hundred mile race, one of my biggest goals, one of my biggest challenges, one of the things I focused a lot of energy on was taking away all of her concerns, you know, minimizing mental uh, stress on her as much as possible. And what's funny is, you know, hundred miles is hundred miles. doesn't matter if you walk it, you run it, you hike it, you're going to be tired at the end of it. But I was destroyed. I mean, I was absolutely destroyed. And I think a lot of it came down to spending my mental energy and, mm-hmm. and that was just as taxing as the physical energy. And I think her bringing that up and talking about that and thinking about the balance of that, is, is really important and something for all endurance athletes to keep in mind. And, and, you know, I'll I'll tie back to Taggart. He has so much confidence that he doesn't worry about stuff. Right. And that's a really cool place to be when you're an athlete in endurance sports, because that worrying is just wasteful. It is, it it burns time energy and it, it, in the end, it doesn't make you any better. Um, so that might be the extreme side of it, but I think that that was a really cool point that she made. And it's something that I've definitely, you know, taken on board.
0: Yeah. What, what she talked about in the book was she said that, that she and her husband, Jeremy, and she talks about their courtship. The first time she met, she actually, okay. So, so on the, the point of view of being totally real, she talks about how she and her husband, who was two years ahead of her at Dartmouth, um, had spotted each other and were kind of attracted to each other on campus. Um, but, but then they finally saw each other in the right place at a party with a few drinks and they immediately started making out, um, like, like that's not the way I would tell the story of my meeting my wife. That's not what I would lead with, you know, but it's she like did. And I appreciate
1: college it. Dartmouth frat party. Right. Like, and and, and what, that's what, like, what is wrong with that? She's so just...
0: there, but that, that's what I'm saying, Michelle, Michelle, you're getting mad at me because I'm, cause I'm saying something I liked about the book. Um, I'm saying that, 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 that to Eric's original point, that was a very real book. Like that's a good example of the reality because a lot of people, including like Matthew Futterman, who who Eric mentioned that we read before, he would not tell the story that way. He would talk about these two people who saw each other and they, they knew they had a connection. And then at one magical night, they met together and they stayed up all night. And she's like, yeah, we met and we kissed and we hooked up. All my friends had already kissed him. And I had kissed lots of other people too. I like kissing. Don't you like kissing? And Jeremy's fun to kiss. Like, like just the way she taught, it was a very real way. And I agree with you. Um, that, that was super real, but, but as opposed to this, like really stylized um, and, and maybe um, uh, exaggerated and, and, and potentially untrue portrayal. Um, she was very straightforward and real and unabashedly um, telling the story of when they first met, which I thought was cool. But anyway, that was a digression. She says that, that when she was first getting going, Um, that she and her husband first getting going as a professional, both a professional athlete and as a professional filmmaker, she and her husband worked out this way that they could judge whether a task was worth doing. And they said that, that you have the tasks that are good for you and the tasks that have a very high mental cost. Sometimes you do something that is good for you, but it has a really high mental cost. Sometimes the mental cost is going to outweigh the good for you benefit, um, Sometimes you have to do things that are going to cost you a lot because the the benefit they're going to give you is really, really, really worthwhile. Um, But sometimes you should probably not do things even though you know they're good for you just because they cost you too much mentally. Um, And I I, I like that idea of the, the balancing physiological and psychological needs. I had a conversation and I think I've told this story to you all before. I don't know if I've told it on the podcast before or not. But I had a conversation in 2018, I want to say. Um, with my friend Maria Thrash. Um, And Maria, who died last year, um, was one of my closest training partners as it happened throughout 2017 and 2018. Maria was a swimmer by training and, and she was a swimmer by profession. She was a swimming coach. And she was one of those people that, you know, to a hammer, everything's a nail. Like the solution to any problem you had was to swim more. And so I'd be like, yeah, my arm kind of hurts swim more. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm really fit enough swim more. Yeah. I don't really feel like I had enough endurance in the last five K of that marathon. You need to swim more. I'm like, you know, like whatever it was, I don't feel like I'm mentally tough enough. It's probably because you need to swim more. Like literally everything was always, you need to swim more. Right. And so one time I was having this conversation with her in 2018, I can't even remember exactly how it came up, but she was like, when was the last time you swam? And I was like, it's been like more than a year. And she's like, you need to be swimming more. And I was like, no, I don't really don't want to swim more. <laughs> um, and she was like, no, you do. It would solve this problem, whatever the problem is we were talking about. And, and it would solve it. I said, you know, I think it probably would help. I think it would probably would, would, would strengthen my core and it would fix whatever physiological issue that I'm dealing with that I'm complaining about to you right now. But the mental cost to go swimming to me is too high.
1: But now it, we are all paying this. I
0: know, I know. Um, but 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 it, there's there's a physiological benefit to it, certainly. But the mental cost is too high, um, and and we we continued the conversation, and she ultimately got to a place where she said, she said, "Are you trying to tell me that there's something that you know that would make you a better runner that you're not doing?" And I was like, "All right, we need to stop the conversation right there because you're not going to make a better point than that." <laughs> Like, like I totally agree there. And I and actually, I agreed. I said, fine, I'll go swimming this week. I put a swim on my calendar and I didn't do it. Um, and it was and it wasn't till literally last month, as Michelle knows, that I finally dragged myself back to the pool and said, all right, the issues that, that Maria was telling me two years ago, three years ago that I needed to address via swimming, I'm finally to a place where the mental cost won't be so high as to outweigh the physiological benefit, the physiological benefit actually outweighs the mental cost. Now, side uh, note:
1: George also put Michelle in a pool, so Michelle's <laughs> also <laughs> dealing with the
0: <laughs>
1: physiological benefit that's hopefully going to come from swimming laps every day. That's week. right. That's Whoa. right. That's right.
0: So, Michelle, you grew up swimming, though, and you you don't dislike swimming as much as I do. I don't think, or do you?
1: I mean, on a day like today, like I. Really hated everything about it. It was have you seen
2: the look on her face when she sends us a picture of her at the pool.
0: Yeah, actually, I have. That's a good point. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody likes swimming. I was telling yet another athlete that I coached yesterday when he was complaining to me about having to swim. I was like, I know. I get it. Um, but it is good for you. And it has, after only two or three swims, it has accomplished the physiological thing that I wanted to accomplish, which means that I haven't been in the pool in a week now because I'm like, oh, problem solved, don't have to swim anymore. Um, which is not true. <laughs>
1: And we could do a whole podcast on swimming, but I think uh, I, I, that's another time.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I would not listen to that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the point being is that she articulated, I think in a very good way, um, this, and she had a chapter about how a, quadrant,
1: a graph, like, four so yeah, quadrants. she, she, she actually
0: made, she said, where okay. does it fall in this quadrant? Good for you, bad for you, high mental cost, low mental cost. Um, and, and you're trying to do things, as much as you can that benefit you physically um, or will will further your career or whatever it happens to be without costing you too much mentally. Um, sometimes you have to do things that have a high mental cost because they are so good for you. Um, but, but generally speaking, that should be the calculus that you use. I, I use that as a coach. Um, and you all know this because I have talked about this on this podcast. Um, you know, the, the best practice in coaching they always talk about is to schedule key workouts first. Um, and I always schedule the key workouts first, not based on necessarily solely the physiology of the athlete, but based on what I know works for them in their life and will have a low mental cost. Um, if one of them says, oh yeah, I, uh, I, I have this run on Thursday morning that I like to go to, then I schedule that first and I build the whole rest of the week around it. Um, because I know it, it pays some, some, some physiological Cost or it has some physiological benefit, but it has a very low mental cost. It's something that they enjoy doing. It sustains them in the sport. Uh, yeah. Um, I
1: deeply appreciated this part of the book, that graph. It just, it was probably the most black and white <laughs> type thing that appeared mm-hmm. at any point in the book. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I hadn't thought that you would appreciate it for that reason, but that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's great. I mean, you can literally put it in a box. Like she gives you four boxes, like pick a yeah. box and then Think
0: about it <laughs> and, and, and just put it on the wall and, and plot out swimming 2000 yards. Where does that fall in the box? Well, and and, it, and not- it changes over time. It, it, like I said, three years ago, swimming was, was, was too high a mental cost for too low of physiological benefit for me. It's, it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore. And that's because my mentality toward it has changed. Um, and my physiology has changed, um, going to master swimming, would be too high of a mental cost. Cause that would be really, really defeating. I was gonna say,
1: is that actually on your radar? No,
0: not at <laughs> okay. all. Not, not not, in the slightest. Um, I, I've talked before on this podcast, I think about how I don't, I don't do workouts on the track that much anymore. Cause something about stepping on the track reminds me too much of the runner I used to be 20, 25 years ago. The mental cost of doing workouts on the track is too high. For the physiological benefit. I'd rather do them on the road, I'd rather do them on the dirt. Um, that's I, I can't step on the track without paying too high of a mental cost. It's defeating, even though I think it probably would be good for me sometimes.
1: No, cool. Well, if you want to know more about it and you want to skip the book, it's called the Willpower Index. So
0: Willpower Index. probably
1: find a Google image about it.
0: <laughs> did she did she call it that? Or because she said there was something that they came up with, right?
1: Yeah, I mean. I just referencing it literally from page 174 in the book, and she mm-hmm. did capitalize the willpower index. So okay. I don't know. Gotcha. <laughs> but right. I do think they came up with that.
0: All right, I'll tell you another part that I liked. And since since we're 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 talking about, about uh page numbers, this was on page 68. Um, and She said, the vast majority, and I'll actually just read directly from the book, the vast majority of athletic programs, even at the collegiate level, lack the most fundamental information about how to properly guide female athletes through puberty and young adulthood. Programs, and this is, and so she was talking specifically about women here, but but I think that generally, I think this was good. Programs confuse health with fitness. Fitness is not an indicator of durability and sustainability. It is only an indicator of athletic ability at the present moment. Health, on the other hand, is a more holistic measure of the body's functionality over time. Fitness is not taken into account what you need to continue training tomorrow and next week. It is better to be 100% healthy and 80% fit than 100% fit and 80% healthy. I really like that a lot. Um, and I think that actually this is, this is one of the shifts that I've made in my mind over the course of the last 15 years. Um, Eric knows from when I was in college, I used to be really adamant whenever anybody would ask me about running, I used to always be like, I'm a runner, not a jogger. Like we had to make pledges in our fraternity, learn facts about us. And one of the facts they had to learn about me was that I'm a runner, not a jogger. Um, and, and to me, the difference between running and jogging was kind of encapsulated in what she's talking about here with health versus fitness is that, that runners are always concerned with fitness rather than health. Joggers tend to be concerned more about health. Um, Because as a runner, I was definitely injured a lot and kind of on the edge of of all sorts of terrible things at any given moment, right? Um, I I like the way she described that because I think that's super important. And that's something that, like I said, has changed in me, both in my approach to myself as an athlete and to the athletes that I coach, um, that I, I try to be more concerned with fitness or with health than with fitness. Um certainly, I try to get as fit as possible and I try to get my athletes as fit as possible, but I'm more concerned about their ability to to maintain this lifestyle over the course of days and weeks and months and years. Um, I really really appreciated that. Um, I liked it a lot.
1: Not to mention there's copious amounts of research that indicate that this is absolutely and completely true of both the high school and collegiate mm-hmm.
0: level for sure especially uh, for sure with- yeah. predominantly
1: males coaching females. Yeah.
0: And she, and she was talking about it in terms of, of being a woman and specifically talking about it in terms of male coaches who don't appreciate, um, the physiological changes that take place in women between the ages of 14 and 20. Um, so she was talking about that specifically. Um, I think, and I, and I agree. And I'm glad that she talked about that. And I'm glad that she talked about that specifically from, for that, because that was her experience. Um, but I think it's more broadly applicable than that. Um, I think that, that a lot of people like me back in the day, were far more concerned with fitness than we were with health. Um, and like I said, these days, I'm more concerned with health than I am with fitness. I still try to be fit. I still try to run fast. I raced yesterday. I'm racing day after tomorrow. Um, but, but, I'm more concerned with what I'm going to be doing when I'm 80. Yeah. Um, what else y'all should we talk about things we didn't like? We've been talking for an hour already. Yeah. So, um, so maybe we should talk about some things we didn't much like. I, I well, mentioned the name dropping a little bit. So, so what else can we talk about?
1: I don't like that. I don't like what you didn't like. I don't like that. You didn't like what you didn't like. <laughs>
0: Okay, I have no idea what you're saying. You're gonna have to be more specific there.
1: So I think you think she came off as like authoritative. Like
0: oh, okay. Well, I haven't said what I didn't like. So you read from the oh. Google Doc. That's what you're talking about. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm frustrated that you
0: okay, okay. I got you. Well, <laughs> well, well, well before you disagree with me, let me actually say what I didn't like. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, for, for, for all the people listening here. So um, but but yeah. So like I said, I I I really did like some things, but I do think that she spoke with authority on things that I don't feel like she has a lot of authority in. Um, and, And I think she got off on the wrong foot because the very first thing she talked about literally in the first couple of chapters of the book is how to parent. Well, she's not a parent. So she literally, she literally said good parents do this. How do you know? Like you've had two parents and you've never been a parent. Like how do you really know what good parenting actually is? And she spoke with the, in these real authoritative terms about, about, parenting and good parenting and i think that she did that a couple of times throughout the course of the book I, I i definitely think that she spoke authoritatively about some of the stuff that she experienced that 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 she should have spoken authoritatively about and i'm glad that she did her experience as a woman in sport her experience at the olympics her experience in post olympic depression trying to navigate the, the the mental landscape um the tricky mental landscape of, of, a, of an elite athlete i i like that but when she talked about like her father's psychological state. Um, like I, I, I think that she didn't like that. And then along the same lines, she, she generalized a lot of her own personal experience and she would just say, this is the way it is for everybody. Um, I a
2: hundred percent agree with and, that.
0: And, and I, book, and I took issue with that. Yeah. I,
2: I picked up on that. Something was annoying me about the book. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I read, I started noticing they're they're not I think statements they are this is how it is statements and you could find four of those on the same page and then you flip the page and there's three more and you flip the page and there's four more and I started saying you know I'm reading this through the the voice of she thinks this but but the way it's actually written is right this is how it is and I would say probably 75 percent of those I might agree with but I didn't need I didn't, I didn't appreciate that. So, so Michelle, I can, I can totally see though, that might not be the way males communicate. In
1: Right. Um, So I'm wondering, so Eric, what you just said about, I'm reading it through, you know, that she thinks this, or she feels this, or she experienced it. That's how I read it. Even though you guys are right. The words are authoritative. They do take, you know, some type of, like subjective, something that happened to her and literally state it almost as an objective truth. But I do wonder if this is just, I do, I really believe the intention of the book was for everybody to read it and uh, take it in through the lens of this was her experience. This is how she feels about it. This is what she thinks, Not, not to be authoritative in the way that you guys found it to be. And I do wonder if it's a male female thing. But I don't know.
0: Here's why. I, I think, if, I think if anything, it would be the opposite. If, if anything, it would be a male that would speak more authoritatively and, and tend to generalize about their own experience and women who would perhaps hedge a little bit about generalizing to everybody. And so maybe, maybe she was purposely trying not to, to hedge, n- not trying to be like, well, I think eh, eh, and she was trying to speak with authority and say, no, this is the way it is, the way that a, a male would. And perhaps she overcorrected. Um, And so, so to the degree that the gender plays into it, maybe that's how, but, but I, I, I think If this was a male
1: author, I do wonder how you guys would have perceived the writing.
0: Yeah, I don't know. If it was a more more mature author, I would say. Yeah, it's the fact that she's 30 or the fact that she's 30 has something to do with it too. Um, And again, she got off on the wrong foot with me by leading with how to parent well, like that like if she would, have if she would have been more authoritative about something else, then, then maybe it wouldn't have struck me that way. And then maybe it wouldn't have like tattooed the, the remainder of the book, right? But
1: she spends uh, the whole rest of the book, like clarifying and defining why she says the things that she says about her father and the way that he did and how they were limited and where she had to find mother figures. I mean, I feel like, I don't know
2: but the statements are, aren't always about stuff like that. And I don't want to go and like, like dig through the book and find them, but I'm just simply saying I noticed that and it, it didn't ruin the book for me. It didn't. But, but the, the issue is when I read a book, one of the things I'm always trying to figure out is who else would read this book? Who would enjoy this book? Who would I pr- provide this book to? Who's, you know, bookshelf should I say, Hey, you should don't read this now, but some, sometime down the road. And what I really hoped I could do was hand this book to grace and say, Hey, read this sometime. Cause I think there's some struggles in here. You might want to, you know, that, I wouldn't even say it like that.
1: There's that, a book. You know,
2: there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, there, there is
1: just a story in here. Like
2: there is a story, but there's a lot to pull out of that story. The problem I have is some of that, it almost says it's like George said, this is how it is. Okay, and but I, somebody I, like I, Grace I think, could
1: read it and just take from it what applies to her or what she needs. You're right, and you're
2: right. And at the end of the day, I that's that's what I think. You know, this is you know, I'm I've I've presented this to her as a book that she can read and might maybe get something out of it. But I've also given her a heads up. That this is a feel good book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I
1: would I would say that's my general uh what I just did not like the most was it felt like it is too much, and I think it was, it, especially in the beginning for me. It was talking a lot about the relationship, you know, between a mother and a daughter, and like what she missed. I can't even talk about it. And I just like I look at my kids, and it's like she lost a whole life because she didn't have a mom. And I could not. It took me. I could get ten pages, and then I would put the book down for like a week because when she mentioned something about like she never got to hug her mother. or Like her memories of her mother, she has four memories that she chooses to speak of, and like three of them are pretty harrowing, (laughs) you know. And the one good one one that she one of
0: them one of them is stuck in my head. One of them I can't get out of my head. I'm not even going to say it. You You don't even put it on the podcast. Yeah, you know which one I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean I
1: wrote part of it on the Google Doc, but (laughs) (laughs) um, because she has a good point about it. I mean, it obviously was a defining moment in her life. But I would just say, like, if you're a mom to girls, like this is the first hundred pages it took me whatever whatever it was it took me like probably 10 weeks to get through the first you know just her talking about the build-up to losing her mother and then it was like okay I can finish this but it was almost like terrifying to continue to go back into this book I don't know yeah, I, I, so I didn't like the I would say I felt like I kept on trying to I was like pissed I was like why do we choose this book like this is so heavy why do i have to read this but i just felt like it was generally i mean maybe though that, that's the point like maybe that's part of what somebody like me is supposed to take from it is it's a lot like the mother-daughter relationship is like paramount to a little yeah. girl um yeah.
0: She, she that wrote first part of the book. She, is the like, heaviness of it. Yeah, she, that she first
1: wrote part of the book
2: is like a two-mile hill. You've got to run to get to the rest of the book. You might be on so the right line after way that, longer
1: but... than two miles, Eric. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I yeah. end every long run with about a two, a 1.8 mile uphill, and it's literally just freaking uphill. This was way worse than that.
0: <laughs> the uh she wrote, I I I did think it was interesting early in the book on page 28. She wrote, um, All dead people should know this. They're going to matter even if they think they won't. And even if they don't want to, I understand now that toward the end, my mother was so sick that she didn't want to be part of this world any longer. She thought she could fade away, but her absence meant as much to me as her presence would have.
1: I mean, I think this also just generally speaks to suicide and Mm -hmm. what it's like for the people left behind. Yeah. Like it gives a little bit of grace to The people I've known that have committed suicide are actually running people. Like, honestly, there are people that, you know went after that major endorphin high and um, I don't wanna say all runner people but the people that I've been close to. And I think a lot of times people just don't understand like, how could they do this? How could they leave two boys behind? And I know another guy in our running group, you know he, he once said to me like, you don't understand like for us, we fight you know, every single day to like stay in this world, to live life, to get as much out of life and every day that we can. And for people who are suicidal, like they basically are fighting every single day, just not to die. And eventually for the people who are successful, like they lose the fight.
0: Yeah, the, she she talks, when she's talking about her post olympic depression, she talks about how being depressed, it distorted her entire perception of reality. And I think that that's hard for a lot of us who have not experienced depression to really understand. Um, a close cousin of mine committed suicide, um, 22 years ago. Um, and he went into the woods and shot himself. And before he shot himself, he went up close behind this particular house. Um, and the authorities, when they found his body, which by the way, took two years to find, um, believe that the reason why he went up close behind this house is because he figured somebody inside the house would hear the gunshot they come out and find his body and and it took me forever to wrap my mind around that sort of cold logic around your own suicide that that he could think so rationally about what he was about to do um and and eventually i came to the fact that I I, I can't understand that, um, and I and I and I'm fortunate that I can't understand that um, because his whole perception of reality was distorted.
1: Yeah, I just I know we need to wrap up here in a minute, but I just want to come back to one of the things that I actually did like about the book, and I think this can be said for other mediums as well. But um, just the way that she talks about and she normalizes depression and suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. and you know she comes out and says depression is something that you have, not something that you are the stigma around depression begins with the way we talk about it and the way we label it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, that's pretty important. Um, there was an article that came out today, literally outside magazine called about mental health in the mountains. Um, Drew Peterson came out and basically just opens about his struggles with suicidal thoughts. And literally the article just details, you know, why talking about it is key to addressing the mental health crisis. And, um, Sorry to go back to something. No, I I, think I, I, and, I, and I think that's
0: actually a really good point to end on, um, yeah. is that, that I think that this book um, and Run Happy, which we read last year, because you remember, it had that sort of left field um, uh, chapter in it that we, we talked about at the time. Um, they're, they're doing what they can to try and normalize uh, mental health and trying to help mainstream America see it as um, as an injury. Uh, to see it as, as a sickness and an illness that needs to be treated and regarded that way. Um, and I'm glad that it's part of this, that that conversation, because I think it's an important conversation. And it is a difficult thing for us to change society and even as individuals to change our thinking on that. But I think it's critical that we do.
2: I, I think her characterization of it as, a, as like a runner's injury, like a hamstring injury, mm-hmm. where you can treat it for a little while. And if you feel better and you think you're all good and you go out and run again, it's just going to come right back. And you, you really have to dedicate everything, everything you're doing, all of that mental energy to that and put everything else aside. It, that was a very, you know, interesting, um, uh, insightful. Important. Yeah. Cause it's not, it, it's not what we deal with on a daily basis, but we do understand an injury and we have all been through the injury that returns and we all understand that you have to just dedicate you know the the right time and energy to that to
0: actually get over it and i think that was really helpful Mm -hmm. so and you need to do the same thing when your brain is injured yeah for sure
1: yeah i think just very final thought like she chose optimism she proves it over and over in the book that you know we can all make this choice um you know she says life never serves you the lessons you need in the way you might imagine you'd receive them, but the lessons are nonetheless there. So I think that's just a really kind of the overarching point of her book. Very good. Choice, so
0: Very good. And a good note to end on. Eric, thanks for being with us. We look forward to uh, you and Grace coming on next week to tell us about your 100-miler. Excited about it. Thanks, George. Michelle, thanks for Braving Your Way Through Bravy. I know it was not an easy book for you to read. Yeah, I'm
1: picking the next book, by the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. So share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find it at ITLCoaching.com, on Twitter, at ITLCoaching, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash ITLCoachingPerformance, and on Instagram, ITLCoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, BluePineappleTravel.com, Facebook.com slash BluePineappleTravel, and on Instagram, BluePineappleTravel. And finally, don't forget, we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's SlayRx.com. Facebook.com slash Here4SlayRx. That's the number 4, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx. And Instagram, here for slayrx The number 4, SlayRx. Discount code, Pleasant21. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.